Hello everybody and welcome to Game and Gadget Podcast number six, a unscripted podcast where we just talk to wonderful special guests and it's a slight change from before. So me and Tony were doing a podcast before called the Bits and Bobs podcast, which basically gave us this opportunity to ramble and sometimes we'd have a guest along to join us for the ride. But we've just merged this with the Game and Gadget podcast, it will become a more regular thing time permitting and here we are and streaming this live for the very first time so i'm excited we're using new cloud podcast recording software we're expecting big things so i think we're all intrigued to see what happens at the end of it so with me today i have tony warrener who's now going to tell us a little bit about his background rather than me ramble on and try and give in a sentence what he does and what he did and what he's about to do uh, am I? Um, 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 uh, well, I've been, been writing games and stuff since uh, 85, back in the 8-bit days. Um, Revolution, of course, from 1990 onwards, where I worked with Steve from what, whatever that was, 92 or something, Steve? 93. Did that on and off for many years, uh, Broken Sword, Steel Sky, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, the last, I guess, the last decade or so, I've been doing different bits and bobs uh, here and here and there for different people. Bit of mobile, uh, bit of this, bit of that, web. Uh, I'm currently working for Shifty Eye Games in Canada. Potentially not for all that much longer. Um, <laughs> um, I've been doing that for a couple of years, though, so time for a change, maybe. And finally, I think the plan is to do do my own stuff. That's what I need to do. So I'm kind of gearing towards doing my own stuff. You've been kind of a freelancer in some nature at one time or another, though, haven't you? So it's not completely alien to Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the, the trick with being freelancers is to, you know, there's... You know, it's, it's easy to say you freelance. Are you doing your own stuff, or are you doing stuff that people commission you to do? You know, I mean, your own stuff is is, is the dream, but it's it's kind of difficult still, or or maybe maybe it was difficult and now it seems a bit easier. I don't know. I think it's knowing knowing what you want to do and what you what you need to do. And uh, I don't know. I think I feel for once, the first time in a long time, I, I've got a clear idea of what I think I should be doing. So that's why I'm that's why I'm heading that way again. That sounds like a special epiphany to have. If only we're all so lucky. It may be and famous st- last words. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Steve, Mr. Steve Ince here, maybe you could uh, just give us a little bit about your background too. Well, I haven't had an epiphany. <laughs> you should see. <laughs> um, well, uh, I've been in, in the games industry um, in various ways for nearly three decades. Um, I joined quite late in life. I mean, obviously Tony joined, well, began his gaming career while he was still at school. Um, but I was in my mid-thirties when I, when I joined the industry. And I'd had a kind of mixed bag um, previous to that. Um, from working in bingo halls to uh, working in um, metal refineries. Um, uh, so it was a bit strange, you know, sort of, and then coming into into game development with, um, you know, sort of like with Revolution Software um, and being given a fantastic opportunity and, and being able to kind of like just just develop 
you know, so many creative aspects whilst making, you know, having the pleasure to work on so many um, you know, great games. Um, and then obviously I left Revolution, 10 Freelance, and, you know, sort of concentrated on the writing and design side of things. Um, and I, and uh, from, you know, working on, on games like, like The Witcher to, um, you know, sort of small, um, casual games, but also writing books, written a couple of books about game writing as well as um, a couple of novels and uh, a picture book. A picture book, <laughs> that's brilliant. But how yeah. on earth do you go from bingo to working for Revolution <laughs> Software? Where was the transition? Where was your epiphany to make that? Um, well, actually, you know, sort of like the bingo, I, I, I kind of fell into that accidentally, really, you know, sort of like it was one of those, oh God, you know, I need to find something, you know, I need to find a career. I left university without a real kind of direction. And then um, fell into bingo and spent two years, you know, sort of like in the southeast, um, going from one club to another as, you know, sort of like assistant manager, you know, sort of like long hours and horrible. And in the end, I left because, you know, I didn't like the, the exploitation of people's weaknesses for gambling, you know, and it's just. Um, I just felt as though, you know, sort of like, I don't know, it just wasn't for me in the end. And then I went to work for the re <laughs> for the metal refinery, and, and, and that was supposed to be a temporary job, and I ended up working there for eight years, and it was just crazy. And then I sort of was made redundant from there, and and it was kind of like, oh, God, I've got to find something more creative, and, you know, sort of. And, and, and I knew somebody who then knew that... that Revolution were looking for somebody, um, and you know, just just fortunate to to get taken on. I think. You know, so so <laughs> while you were doing the bingo, while you were in the metal refinery, mm -hmm. where was the creative spot? Where were the juices? There were you sort of experimenting in your own time. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand where well, that still, happened. Yeah, I did. You know, sort of like bits and pieces of writing, um, nothing substantial. But I also, you know, so I did a lot of painting and drawing and stuff. I've always, I've always done that aspect um, from being very young. Um, and, you know, sort of like, I did, I did a couple of years as well, you know, I did um, evening class, you know, sort of like it's supposed to be um, a five-year course to lead to or to fine art degree, but I only did a couple of years um, just because, you know, sort of like, Lack of time more than anything. Of course, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of prior to joining the games industry, I had sons, you know, sort of marriage, sons, divorce. <laughs> sort of the, the way of oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, Tony, last time we spoke in the podcast, we were talking about things like ZX Spectrum Next. Have you had any more time to dabble with it since it arrived? Uh, no, and it's it's actually transitioned from being on the desk to above the desk in its, in its box again now. Oh dear, this is like so, some sad Toy Story film. 
I'm a bit I'm a bit into your minds about the next actually I mean the actual machine itself is obviously um, very nice indeed and, you know every, everything about it is nice and you know, what they've delivered and what they said they were going to deliver uh, I mean they, they, they exceeded it really I mean the thing itself is perfect uh, I guess uh, I, I'm a bit down on it because uh, I, I mean they, they, they probably never said they were going to do this any different but all, all they've done is two kickstarters, and the, and the entire production run on the machine is the two is the two kickstarters. You know, which I, I'm not sure how many machines that is. It's like maybe it's twenty thousand machines or something like that. You know, it's not it's not huge numbers, and I, I'm kind of disappointed about that because, to, to my mind, you know, if you bring the spectrum back to life, you, you kind of want you kind of want it to just keep going. You know, and, and like a Raspberry Pi, you know, it's it's a real thing, and it's got a website, and you can you can see your mate's Spectrum next, and you can go on a website and buy yourself one the next day, you know, or you can go on Amazon and buy it, you know. Uh, but this isn't like that. It's like you, you know, the, there was the Kickstarters, and now it's like that's it, you know. So it, it's not it's not a real machine in, in, in the sense that it's a living thing anymore. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of a curiosity almost. I don't know. I'm disappointed by that. I, I thought they would do, they would do a Kickstarter, judge, you know, judge whether they'd done the right thing, if it was popular, if it worked, you know, and if people were going to support it, and, and and maybe make a judgment to to find a way to put the thing into perpetual production, you know, and, and you know, maybe in five years' time there'll be a, a next two with with the revisions and, and, and some enhancements or whatever, but. You know, it would be a living thing and, and evolve in, into a platform of some form, uh, and, that, and that's not what it is. You know, it's 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 a limited run, and that's the end of it, uh, which seems to me very disappointing. So, what drew you? It's a bit sharp, isn't it? Sorry, I'm just saying, it, it seems a bit sharp-sighted. You know, sort of like there's, there's going to be interest in, in in something like that, and you know, sort of it, it just. I mean, to sort of like release it and then effectively kill it straight off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've hit the target audience, of course, which was you know people like me who had the first one and were were excited about seeing the thing alive again and Spectrum name and you know all, all the things. I mean, it, 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 as I say, it, it, it's it's a work of pure perfection is, is what they've done. Um, it's just a lack of vision beyond that, which which is a shame. I mean, maybe they're maybe they're smarter than me, and they they know perfectly well that they've actually sold the machines to everybody who's going to buy one. You know, and in reality, it it can't compete against something like a Raspberry Pi, which is which is more extensible and you know obviously runs the internet perfectly well. And you know, to what would you really do? You know, what would you really do with the Spectrum next? Would you start building it out so it can? A browser on it, and and, and, then, and then it just becomes a it becomes a PC, doesn't it? So maybe they've said, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe their vision is that you can't really take it anywhere. But you know, nonetheless, I mean, back in the eighties, you buy you buy one of these machines, and all you could do on it was program it in BASIC, and then when you got really good at that, you could you could try and learn assembly on it, and then by that point, you were a, a pretty competent um, engineer, you know. Uh, and, and that was the beauty of it. So you know, maybe there is a maybe there is a market for for a machine where you buy it for your kids, and, 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 all, and you know, all they can do on it is is create things, you know, rather than consume things. And maybe that's its selling point. You know, it's the it's the doing computer, it's the it's the making things computer, 
rather than the uh, it all comes down the internet and it's just another it's just another browser, you know. I mean, they're, they're trying to do both on the Pi and, and with some success for for whatever it costs, ten quid, you know. So maybe 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 they couldn't compete with that. They, they thought I don't know. So what drew you to the ZX Spectrum next over? I mean, is it the Raspberry Pi is in a way too versatile, as in there isn't that niche? You can do so much with it, whereas the Spectrum Next, there are certain boundaries and limitations to it where probably that makes it a little bit more appealing for you? Well, the thing about an 8-bit machine, of course, was that you really could sit down and learn everything there was to know about it. You know, you, you, could, you could disassemble the ROM, you, you could learn how the ports works on the back, and, you know, you could program it in assembler and there was nothing more you know you, you could learn everything there was to learn about spectrum and that was that was part of the appeal you know a, a raspberry pi it's it's a, it's a cheap linux, linux machine and you know you can spend your lifetime learning how linux works you know and, and it's pretty archaic you know, a lot of it and, and very specialist you know and, and at the end of it you're you're qualified to work on server farms you know and stuff like that um, it's not quite the same magic as uh, as an 8-bit machine had I can understand that. So from your perception, Steve, obviously technology has come on a long way and continues to go at a fair pace, even if there is a component shortage right now. As far as game writing is concerned, has the dynamic changed? Is there more involved? Is there more requirements? Or are the fundamentals for game writing still the same? Um. I think that that we have more opportunities to to get you know a greater variety of story out there. I think um, the trouble is, you know, in the main, you know, sort of like if you want to get big stories out there on on big games, you you have to work with the big developers, and that doesn't always give you the freedom that you want. You know, sort of you've got to work on their ideas often, and that, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, lots of people would love to work on you know some of these these huge titles. I think that we're seeing more interesting stuff come along in the in the indie areas. You know, sort of like people are doing personal projects. You know, with, with some friends or, or stuff like this, or, or or a small team, a small studio, and and they're they're having the fun. They're they're, they're doing stuff because they're, they're loving it. And we're still getting that, you know, we're still, after all these years, in spite of the, you know, advances in technology and publishing and, 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 and all sorts of platforms, you know, sort of like, we're still getting a love of, of creating games that are, you know, got their own little twist or, or style to them because, because people want to, to do something for themselves. And really, you know, sort of, in a sense, that hasn't changed at all. It's just got better. People have, have found tools that enable them to do what they want in, in a much better way. You know, sort of like when when Tony and I started, or when Tony obviously started before me, but when I joined the revolution, you know, sort of like everything was having to be made to, to you know, proprietary tools for all sorts of things. You know, the graphics, the, 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 the logic, the, the, the dialogue and everything. And, and so, you know, sort of... It, that that kind of thing gave gave you know sort of like each game its unique feel as well you know sort of like because there were all these things but now you know sort of the tools are, are, are quite flexible and so you don't need to not always do that 
you can concentrate, you know, sort of the programming in 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 you know stylization, say, or or the graphics, you know, in a particular way, and so the story as well. And I think that you know, sort of like the fact that that we've got this ability to to kind of like shift focus a bit more towards the content, I think, is is the biggest is the biggest change. Um, and that's not to say that that you know, sort of like people can't do original stuff from from scratch. You know, so I mean, one of my favourite games. I mean, it's not not really recent now, but you know, kind of like Thomas was alone. You know, sort of Mike Biff and more or less did that game on his own, and it was just just a bridge, uh, uh, an original take on on a platform game. You know, and I think that, but yeah, it had a great story as well. You know, and and. And so, you know, sort of there is, there is a lot more going on. Yeah. Interesting. So, I may be... I mean, good stories. Sorry, good stories are good stories, ultimately. No. I mean, this is why Broken Sword has lasted so long, and, and even Sting Sky. You know, I mean, you know, so like driving, driving those games is a good story with good characters. You know, sort of, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's other stuff going on as well. But at the core is, is a great story. Absolutely, but and that's the that's an interesting comparison. So when I look at something like Broken Sword, which of course is probably one of Revolution Software's most well-known titles, although they've got certainly quite a few to fall back on, that was almost like a continuous story. Like every action had a reaction, and everything you picked up had a reaction. And if you combine it with something else, it had a reaction. It was almost like the story was a constant. Now, if I compare that to something like The Witcher, which is, I would say, a lot of the story out of AAA titles, where they're spending tens of millions of dollars on these games, comes out of a very carefully scripted cutscene. So it's an animation where you're kind of sat back and watching the mm. thing happen and unwind. And then you're back to the action, you follow the path, you get on your horse and do whatever. So they try and say, when you hop on the horse, you may have a conversation with somebody who's also on a horse to add some extra detail. But it's not continuous because, in essence, it's an open world you explore and then that will trigger events. Where I always felt like a point-and-click adventure, although technically you're triggering events, it was almost a constant thing. You were hitting things all the time. Yeah, yeah the, the Witcher is a funny game, actually, because, I mean, I... I didn't get. I wasn't involved with the, the writing directly. I was involved with the script editing. So I I saw this in a very sort of funny funny way. <laughs> First game, I was given hundred thousand words and told to reduce it by a third, <laughs> which isn't really editing. It's more butchering. <laughs> um, but you know, sort of. So you're kind of having to get your head around all these. You know, as you say, a lot of it is kind of like broken up into these. You know. Slightly disconnected thing, um, and and so you're trying to be consistent within a very very strange environment. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean they're hugely popular, although I found it difficult to play the two me. <laughs> so t Tony, back in the day when you were working on these games, <coughs> when the script came along. How did you sort of break that down into the game? What were the processes involved? Did you were there things given to Steve where here's the outline, this is what we expect to happen, we need dialogue? Or was Steve like shaping it, 
we're going to this location. How how did that process work with particularly the programming side of things? I know this isn't a quick answer. It, it, yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. You know, how, how did we make broken sword? Um, uh, it's a good question. I mean, it was it was not very well planned. I think it's fair to say. I mean, that was the that was the defining factor of any of any revolution going was a lack of planning. But you know, something that that facilitated something else, which was uh, a kind of a kind of dynam dynam I can't say the word dynamism between the, the different people working on it and, and, and once in a while it would absolutely gel together into a into a seamless process where whereby uh, you know creative assets were, were just flowing around the place in their own special way and uh, you know I, I guess those guys programming the engine would and then implementing uh, what we called implementing uh, the, the, the game itself would would be at the center of it all to some degree but uh, and, and, you know everyone was very close to the to the engine and, and to everybody else and and, and, it, and people would talk to each other and decide what they were going to do you know there, there was there was a rough plan but you know, Charles was only ever, Charles and the design people were only ever a few days ahead of the implementation. Sometimes they were behind it, uh, and, and, and and stuff would just be flowing into the game. And, and sometimes people would be, you know, like a, a, like Steve Odes on the sprites would be would be talking to me, or he'd be talking to to Steve, or or even a, a, a music guy, and and they'd make decisions about what would be cool and interesting, and 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 that that was. Those decisions were never part of a planning process. They were never on uh, on some spreadsheet with costings against them. You know, it was just like, oh, this would be good. Let's just do it, and it would it would come down the pipeline and end up in the game. You know, uh, I mean, that's just how we did it. it. It was it was a small enough team to be to be able to flow that way. I mean, it it, it kind of started to break down when we when we did In Cold Blood, I suppose, which was a bit bigger and more expensive and had and had bigger flaws in the in the in the technology plan and stuff like that, which 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 generated bigger problems. But back in the certainly down up to, up to that point, you know, Brentford One, Two, Steel Sky, and Lure and that kind of thing, it was it was very much uh, just here's a bunch of people and and somehow it all fits together and and the, and the the game gets made, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, uh, and I'm repeating myself from what I said on your thing the other week, Steve. But you know that to me, that's how games should be made, and, and that the team should always be small enough that they can, you know, they can sit around uh, a couple of pizzas and, and decide what they're going to do for the next couple of weeks, and that's good enough, you know. That's where great to me. That's where that's the that's the. Uh, that's the grassroots. That's where good stuff comes from. That's where innovation comes from, and, and you know that's that's certainly where I would want to be working. I think I think that's right as well. You know, so you get a handful of people in a room um, throwing ideas about, and and it can be incredibly creative. But you put too many in that room, and you get bogged down. You know, sort of you're managing people's ideas more than you are actually. You know, sort of like deciding which ones are going to go through. It's it's a funny process. I mean, if if you go back to to when I joined, I mean, I I joined partway into Steel Sky, and that was um, that was fascinating because I, I thought that was just such a, a great looking game. You know, sort of, and and then I was doing bits and pieces on the on on the artwork and some sprite animals and stuff like this. And then when we moved on to Broken Sword, we were, 
the, orig the, the original intention was to, to do it at the same resolution. Um, but then, sort of like CDs came along, and suddenly, you know, kind of like better monitors were, were available. So we were having to kind of change our thoughts. So we were changing the, the, our approach to the art style and everything. And, 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 it, and it became, a, a, you know, sort of a bit of a mess for a while until we, until we really kind of like found that direction again. Um, and that's, you know, sort of, but we started bringing more people in and, and, and it was difficult to manage. And, and so, so I got made producer. <laughs> uh, so it was my job um, to try and pull everything back online. And, and um, oh God, that was a nightmare. I've never done anything like that before. Um, it, it was a mess. But, you it know, definitely were. Brother Sword really was an epic mess, wasn't it? But, but you know, mm -hmm. look what came out of it. And you, you can say you can say none of that. Mm -hmm. none of, on the day you finish Broken Sword, not, none of it, none of it matters, does it? Because you've got Broken Sword. No. And, no. and here we are, nearly, and, and nearly thirty years later, and, and you know that that game has been played right now on, on mobile devices. You know. Yeah. But also, you know, sort of the you know you learn so much in, in in the process of doing something like that. So when we when we did Broken Sword two. We managed to release that a year a year after Sword One, which was, you know, still a phenomenal achievement. Even though we we kind of knew what we were doing and it was in the same sort of style, you know, gameplay wise and stuff. Um, so so you know, but you know, still an awful lot of content in there, wasn't it? So, it was. Yeah. And then a director's cut came yeah. along and added more. <laughs> I'm not. I must admit, I'm not a fan of the director's cut because I think it puts too much emphasis on on Nico at the beginning, and it's really George's story. But, but that's that's just a personal thing. It's not. It's not that it's bad. I just don't think it's it's quite the same as the original. I like. So it. is the risk, isn't it, of a director's cut? <laughs> Particularly if you've played the original, and then you think, oh yeah, the director's cut. What we're going to get? And then put extra bits in it, and I think it really is up to the individual whether they're going to enjoy it or not. And it's such a hard one; it's it's almost roast tinted glasses situation, and how much you remember the first one. If you if you played the first one a lot, and then suddenly there's something jammed into it at the start, you're gonna, it's probably going to be jarring. But maybe if your first time coming to the game, I don't know. It's an interesting one for sure. I think the intriguing one was when I played that on the Nintendo Wii. And there I was with the motion <laughs> controller. And I thought, hey, this isn't too bad for point-and-click adventures. It was almost like it was designed for it. But then when you try Broken Sword, actually, this is where technology has actually lent itself to 2D point-and-click adventures. Tablets. To be able to touch an object yeah. and interact. I think that... When I think to using a mouse for 2D point-and-click adventures, and I thought that was the bee's knees at the time, using a tablet, oh my word, that is the way to go. <laughs> if I'm ever going to play a point-and-click adventure now, I really want to do it on a tablet. And when I play Broken Sword, and I've got so many different flipping versions of it now, it's the iPad version I will play. Yeah, it did work well with Touch. I mean, you see, you see some adventures that don't have a good UI, and then it's it's it's, it's no better than it used to be, but um, or, or worse because they're, they're, you know if they're just trying to do the old mouse interface with, with touch, you know you need to, to push it a little bit further and, and do something custom just for touch. But and I think we did quite well with, with you know, first of all what we did on Steel Sky, which was the first one we did, 
So I mean, that, that, that UI did work pretty well. And everyone copied us afterwards, so that, that, was, that was good. Yeah, because they, they released a version of Monkey Island, didn't they, where, where effectively you were dragging a mouse around the screen. Yeah, was, mouse dragging is not good. Mouse dragging is no good. You have to you have to take it all away and, and start again. Mm. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> well, it's not it's not that much work. I mean, you just you just need it's, it's a design job really. And if you've got the engine, then you know you, the content was was unchanged. You know, it's just it's just in the UI. So it's new. It's, it should be able, you should be able to slice that off and put a new UI in, and, and what it joins onto is is exactly the same as it used to be. Uh, that's in all the things you've got to do to make a game. That's that's not the hardest one, certainly. So, Steve, you're writing all this content. You're now managing all these people. You then pass it on to folks like Tony to do their wizardry and get it up on screen in some digital fashion. What were the early builds like when you got it? Had a little look at it early on. Um. It's difficult, really, to say. Because I mean, was were there a lot of the sprites in? Were there a lot of the animations in, or was it really bare bones what you were getting back, and you were having to figure it yeah, all out? Yeah, I mean, we went for a long while, you know, sort of like there's an awful lot of like tool development and um, engine development and stuff, you know, sort of which kind of gives you a, a leeway to 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 get a bit of you know, sort of. You know, sort of steam on, on going on the on the backgrounds and, and the sprites. I mean, one of the biggest jobs was Steve Odds with 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 the George um, character set because because we we gone we decided to to scale the character to fit the perspective of, of each location. So we needed kind of like the formula that, that allowed us to do that. But also, um, Steve had to create this character set that um, you know the eight direction animation. And sort of like it, it, he had to make it turn off either the left foot or the right foot, depending which part of the of the um, you know kind of walk cycle he was on. And 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 then was it James who did the programming for the scaling? Had to kind of like find the right route for George, you know, sort of while it was scaling and 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 changing the footstep size and all this kind of stuff. It was. <laughs> very clever, very clever, but very, you know, sort of fiddly stuff. And then, of course, Steve would look at it on screen and then sort of make tweaks and change. It, it became very complex. And then there was a lot of other peripheral you know, animation that, that he put in. You know, like when he was standing, he'd kind of like flick his hair back and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, then there was the, the talk animals and, and how, how, you know, sort of like we'd, we'd fake lip syncing by. <laughs> you know, sort of like the the animal would only you know move, or his mouth would only move when the level of the voice was above a certain volume, and, and all things like this. It was um, there was a lot going on, you know, and that's before you even start <laughs> properly implementing you know sort of the the specific sprites in a location and all the logic that goes with picking objects up and combining them and you know talking to other characters about them and, and all this kind of stuff. It's it sort of so you know sort of we knew where we wanted to be, but it, you know, it took us a while to get there. That's that scaling um, was. I think that the algorithm was yours, wasn't it? The maths. I think you did it. 
yeah, I came up with the, the original formula, and then and then um, Dave used that to create a tool so we could actually set the scale in within each location. So we we kind of set one one line to zero where where the horizon was, and another one, you know, sort of somewhere near the bottom where where it would be maximum size for George, and then it, and then it would scale between those. Scale in, scale so, in. Um, and then, and then, I think James, I think it was James who used that to kind of like, you know, sort of actually do the the in-game scale. But, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the only time that I've used my uh, A-level. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you go through all the all this stuff, and then you know, sort of, uh, you have one one instance in your life where you actually. That, use that's it. pretty amazing, <laughs> that isn't it? Bingo metal refinery formula for scaling George. Marvelous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my it's, it's my significant contribution to uh, Broken Sound. I think. Yeah, your gravestone, Steve. Did did here lies Steve yeah. did did the scaling for Broken Sword. <laughs> It would have been my podcast introduction if I had known that earlier. <laughs> There'd be two lines on the gravestone. We'll know what it means. <laughs> yeah. a, a equals B plus X. Yeah, that was wow. it. <laughs> I can't remember it. I can't remember the point. I never understood it. I don't think I've got a record of it. I'm going to have to kind of like create it from scratch again. I'll dig it out for you, Steve. So yeah. if it was quite... <laughs> Not an unplanned process, but certainly it was very agile. You're having to come up with new ideas all the time. You're having to react very quickly. What was the deadline pressures like with all that going on? <laughs> oh, that seems like the right question to ask. It's kind of... It's one of those, ooh, there it is. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, Broken Sword um, 1 was, was famous for overrunning quite quite considerably and it probably it probably ran a year over what it was meant to be I would think and then they they kind of punished us by saying right we're taking all of it away from you on the follow-up which where we're going to claw back you know the, the publisher was basically going to claw back all of the overrun and all of the overspend on a, on a, a quick uh, sequel which is basically what happened you know so that the two and a half years of broken sword one was was turned into one year to the day on the on the on the sequel. Um, I mean, you can see that it's a smaller game, uh, albeit probably about the right size anyway. But you know, the, the complexity of Broken Sword One uh, is, is certainly not there in Broken Sword Two because because it was a good a good eighteen months less less time, you know, and and half over half it's the budget. Yeah, it's a lot more straightforward story as well. You know, kind of. Very it's linear, linear. You know, you're not. You know, you haven't got the the options to kind of wander around Paris, or you know, kind of like go to Spain before you go to Syria or vice versa. You you know, there are there are a number of really good bits in Broken Sword One where you know, sort of, you feel as though you're in control, and so to you feel as though you're taken along by the story a bit. I think, um, although people, some people prefer number two to number one. Um, yeah. It's, it's an okay game. <laughs> so for something like a point-and-click adventure, and you've done a few, as far as when you're getting bug reports and testing involved, how on earth, I mean, the m number of variables, have they got this item in their inventory? If so, say this dialogue. 
if they've combined this with that item but haven't done this yet, then action this. It must be quite a... I mean, if you were to draw a diagram of it, it must be a pretty complex beast to deal with. There, There is no diagram, certainly. Um, I mean, what it was, it was all in what we called scripts, which was, which was our own language that we invented to, to handle this. And... Uh, you know, basically, all key points where, where the where the player could could initiate an interaction, there will be a script. Uh, you know, like George, if you if you click on something, or if you uh, if you right click on something, or if you drag an inventory object onto something, there'll be a script runs, and then that script basically is unique content, and, and it can do as many if this has happened, if that's happened. You know, uh, then do this, then say that, uh, and it was just millions of those, literally probably tens of thousands of them, uh, and, that, and that's the that's the guts of the game. You know, so the game itself is in these script files; it's not in the engine as such. Um, you know, I mean, and they're all they're all written that way, pretty much, in, using using a slightly different system. But, but that's basically how you make an adventure game, uh, unless you're crazy. Um, uh, and and uh, it, yeah, they're kind of readable. I mean, the, the thing is, we were we were hiring people with no programming experience who had never made a game, made a game before, sitting them down, giving them a bit of a tutorial on written on the back of an envelope, and, and like two days later, they were they were actually helping make the game. So it was it was it was not that bad, you know. I mean, no one understood the whole thing, but but because it was too huge and complex. But you know, it, it was not in itself inherently difficult. Yeah, I, I think that that it's about breaking it down into lots of small parts, you know, sort of like, and and that's what that's where you kind of like win, because if you can be logical about a very small part, like you know, sort of, um, you know, using the manhole cover on the sorry the manhole key on the manhole cover, you know, sort of like all you need to check for is does George, or or rather, you can't do this unless George has it in his inventory. So all all you're doing effectively then is, you know, the inventory. Yep, yeah, I've chosen this thing to use on on that object, and therefore I'll run this script. You know, kind of, and where it becomes a little complex is if he then tries to use it on the open manhole. You know, sort of, and it's kind of like, oh, I can't do that because I've already done it, kind of thing. So so you're checking, but it's it's one tiny thing. But it's how the, that tiny thing then links to other tiny things, like getting the getting the manhole key from the workman, you know. And you can't get the manhole key until you've got rid of the workman, you know. And you can't get rid of the workman until you've got the, the newspaper. So it's all these kind of interconnected things, which in if you take each one, it's a simple thing, <laughs> it's, it, you know. It's how those sim- little simple things link together to, to form something more complex. And that's really what's at, what's at the heart of a lot of these puzzles. It's just lots and lots of little things which don't have any complexity at all. <laughs> I think one of the defining features of a point-and-click adventure is when you do an action that's not meant to work. And then you see how much detail they put into a game. So for Broken Sword... If you try to put one object with another, often you'd get a silly response like, why would I do that combination? And some humorous line coming out of it. Now, another point-and-click game I love, it's amazing, and it's Discworld, 
But it's immensely complex. You have to look at walkthroughs if you really seriously want to complete that game. There's no way you could do it on your own by pure logic. It's Some of it is absolutely nuts. But if you play Discworld and you're the poor person listening to a person playing it, the phrase you'll hear a lot is, that doesn't work. And that was pretty much what he said. Every time you did a combination, the game didn't want you to. That doesn't work. And that was it. <laughs> So for my poor mum, bless her, when I was playing Discworld when I was a teenager, she heard that statement a lot because, like I say, <laughs> this game was not that logical at times. So you'd be trying every combination possible and then you'd just randomly come across it, it was right, out of just going through all the combinations. But, yeah, that doesn't work. We tried to catch, we a, tried a, to catch a lot. That was a design choice, wasn't it, with Broken Sword, you know, sort of making it logical. Um, it doesn't mean that it was easy, but it would be logical. Um, well, apart from a goat, doesn't <laughs> what, How has this become so famous? Okay, I know you have to do a certain sequence of events to get past the goat. I get that. But what has made this one event within the whole game? And bearing in mind, this game is full of wonderful moments. The goat is what everybody talks about when it's Brent Sword. I'm sure that wasn't the intention when the goat puzzle was put in. The, the problem was that it used used a, 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 a UI move that wasn't wasn't common to the rest of the game. So I mean, really, people were just were, were stuck because they had not been required to to use the UI in that particular. It was a right click, wasn't it? I think where, where you wouldn't expect it. So that that was the real problem, and pretty 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 serious flaw in, in many ways, I guess. Yeah, I think the the, the obvious you know, sort of thing there was that you know sort of George actually ran at that point and he'd never run. You know, the game. you didn't you didn't actually control him to make him run. You know, obviously because you you click, but you know sort of it's difficult to kind of you know get your head around the fact that he needs to run, but he never he never runs anywhere else in the game. Um, and that that I think flummoxed a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it was it's just one of those, <laughs> just one of those things. I think that you know you sort of you become blind, you know. So it's obvious to you because you're developing this puzzle, um, and so you become blind to how um, the, the the players will actually view this when they come to it completely fresh. And, and this is why testing should really kind of catch. Things like this. Oh well, you know, it's not really clear that you're supposed to do that, but it never did in this instance. So, how do you feel Which about is... more modern? Uh, this has actually happened to Broken Sword on the iPad, where there's lots of hints. The hint system. How do you feel about that being added to point-and-click adventures? And is it a dumbing down, or is it literally to help those people who've maybe not got the patience like we did back in the day to uh, try and advance further in the game? I don't think it's inherently bad, really. Okay, I remember this. I was beta testing Broken Sword. I had like an early version. It was the iOS flight, whatever it is. And you told me, I've been using the hint system quite a lot because you've been, <laughs> been logged. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we actually did some. We, did, we put some logging into when we when we did the iOS versions of the games. We realised that because they were on the internet and, and could just do HTTP um, 
post things, you could very easily write write logging that, uh, and, and of course they've banned it now. You're not allowed to do it in quite the same way. But what we did back then was, you know, we were we were logging well, interactions and uh, you know how many sessions people were playing and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was anonymous. You didn't know who it was. You just know that some, someone had played the game ten times, and you could average out each the length of each of those sessions and how much percentage of the game they solved in those sessions and how far they got and how many screens did we press through. I mean, I mean, it's gold. Gold, really. Because suddenly it was all it was something you were guessing was was all exposed, and you could you could look at it and, and see how people were playing your game, and, and uh, it, it was remarkable. Um, and and it, it also, in the, in the case of the director's cut, it, it uncovered some horrible truths about where people were playing to, and and, and then subsequently not playing. And uh, the, the the data was deemed to be un, untrue and and, <laughs> and, and censored, <laughs> but it was true because because you could uh, you, you know, it wasn't lying, but it wasn't it wasn't popular because basically on, on the director's cut people were getting stuck in the, in those tunnels underneath the the river, quite close to the beginning. There's quite a tricky puzzle. And we lost a lot of players on that, and we knew we were losing them because we had it had it written down. You know, I mean, these days it's all Steam rewards, so you can you can, you can see from that anyway. You know, you can look at a game and, and see where the rewards are coming through, and, and you know, you can you can you can look at anybody's game and, and get a pretty good picture of, of what the gameplay you know fall off is. I mean, I, my, my guess is most games, if you look at it, they're they're, they're, they're not played to completion and. and uh, they, they, they should be really, and if they're not, then what's 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 going wrong? You know, uh, it's a bit of a failure of a game if, if you know it loses two thirds of its of its buyers. Uh, it, you, you know, quite within within the first ten percent of the, of the the implemented game that people have paid for. So, I mean, to go back to your earlier question, if if a few hints here and there get get people through with their stuck point and, and playing and seeing the rest of the game, then that's probably that's probably not such a bad thing because people will people will put a game down you know when you're stuck you played it a bit you know I'm playing an old Resident Evil game on the Xbox at the moment and I died at a certain point and I died again I had it on easy I died again I thought I'm a bit tired of this now I'll, I'll have a break switch the, switch the console off and now there's a huge psychological barrier in front of me to actually go back and and try again. Now, will I actually do it? I, I might do, but I might not, because now I've got to boot the console up and choose that same game and, and try again on something I've failed three times on. I mean, there's a good chance I'll never go back to it, and it's probably 10% into the game. So, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I think, I, I mean, I think that particular game, it, it should say, oh, yeah, this guy's just died three times in a row. We're just going to, we're just going to let him go right through it. <laughs> I mean, it really should. It should, it should say he's died too many times. He, he should just walk through it now. And, and what, no matter what he does, this boss is not going to kill him, you know, because that'll get me, I'll go, oh, look at me. I'm a genius. You know, I've done it now. I'm feeling good. I'm going to, I'm going to see what the story throws at me next. You know, I just want to, I just, I don't want, I don't want to be stopped, you know. Mm. No, I can understand that. Yeah, we are providing entertainment after all. You know, people want to feel challenged, but at the same time, you know, sort of, they don't want to feel as though it's an impossible challenge. I mean, I've done exactly the same as you, Tom. I've, 
I've got to got to a point in a game where I just keep dying, no matter what I try, and I've never gone back to that game. You know, sort of, and it and it's been a game that I've I've really enjoyed up to that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of, and, it, and it's a shame really, but I just know that I'll never get past yeah, yeah. it. You know, um, the the new um, Psychonauts game is going to have a mode where you've got infinite life or something like this, just to enable you to to get through it if, if you get stuck. And and that to me is is a great idea because it means that you can enjoy it without constantly feeling frustrated because um, we're not all. You know, super ninja with with you know, you know, sort of like um, gamepad skills and, and, and things, are we? So we just need we need to be able to kind of buy a game, which which is still not cheap on the games, you know, sort of after all this time, um, and we want to feel as though we're going to get some value out of it. Yeah, be, I remember playing Horizon Zero Dawn on the PlayStation 4, which is an absolutely beautiful game, really fantastic story, beautiful graphics. This game has pretty much everything. It's the only it's the reason I got a PlayStation 4 cuz I'm usually all Xbox, but I was quite happy to get the console just for that one game. And I got stuck. And then I get past that bit after a lot of frustration, a lot of time, and then I got stuck again. And I was like, I haven't got the time for this. I, w- I really want to play this game. The s- story is riveting, but I can't keep getting stuck like this. Thankfully, then they added a story mode. This is just a very kind way of saying, this is even easier than easy. You can just play it, <laughs> yeah. enjoy the story, sit back, enjoy the spectacle around you. We won't give you clues or tips just it's story mode it's a gentle and it was it was for me who didn't have the time to keep going still it was just a bit of a salvation that i could see the end to this game and i absolutely adored it it was spectacular and the lack of difficulty didn't spoil it for me yeah yeah and the beauty also something something like minecraft is that you know when it's gonna happen because you know, you've got the day-night cycle. In the day, it's butterflies and flowers and sheep running around, barring, and everything's great. And you know, you know when it gets dark, the, the vampires come out and the, and the zombies come out. And you, you know, if, as long as you can hide in your house, you're going to be safe. And uh, I really love that. You know, you, you, you've got a choice. And you can go out there and fight them or, what, or whatever, or, and play it on killer mode or whatever. But you know, you, if, if you just if you just want to avoid all the trouble, you just you just you just go in your little house at night and you're safe, you know. It's great. Now we're going to have to start bringing this podcast to a close. We've been talking for 50 minutes, which is great. Really interesting stuff, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. But, Steve, just before we go, you've been busy with the old writing again, and you've not that long ago (laughs) released another book. And, of course, you're well known for game writing, and you've been very good to sort of do lots of talks uh, in person, before the form of recent events in the last 15 months, I won't say the word, but I'm sure you know what I'm thinking, where it's been a bit difficult to go outside yes. and mingle. Certainly no chance of a full house, sorry, bingo reference, at the moment. <laughs> however, you've been able to put pen to paper, or finger to keyboard, however you do it these days, and you've written a book. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that, Steve. Um well, thanks for the plug. Um, it's called an, um, an introduction to game writing, um, and basically, it's it's aimed at, at 
people 10 plus but anybody who's never written a game or doesn't have a clue about game writing no matter how skilled they are at, at, at writing or, or not um, will benefit from it but you know sort of I wanted to aim it at younger people because there's nothing really you know sort of aimed at that age group and there's, lot, there's lots of great um, game writing books in the sense that you know sort of you can improve your your you know sort of like interactive narrative skills in, in all sorts of ways but there's nothing really that kind of gets you on that path um, and, and you know schools in, in lots of ways are, are trying the best to engage you know kids in, in, in new ways you know in spite of <laughs> you know the restrictions of the curriculum and so on so I just thought it would be great to 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 do this and particularly you know, sort of, I've, I've done a number of um, workshops in schools, and you know, so like, no matter the ability of the kids involved, they always really get involved and, and love, love, you know, sort of trying to make these interactive stories. Um, so you know, so sort of like with lockdowns and restrictions, you know, sort of, I haven't been able to do any of that. So it was just an ideal time to to write the book, and you know, sort of like convert what I've learned and and, and done in the workshops. Um, to, to, to create it. So I, it's, you know, it goes through a very step-by-step -step process and it starts from very basic ideas and, and just builds the complexity up and everything's clear and lots of diagrams. And it's not a very long book. You know, sort of it's 130 pages. Um, and, you know, sort of I've tried to keep the price down to a reasonable level as well because too many game writing books are very, very expensive. Um, so, so it's seven ninety nine in English money, um, and, and equivalent prices in, in other parts of the world. Um, so, you know, sort of hopefully people get an awful lot out of it, um, and people have said already seen good things about it. So, I'm, I'm quite pleased with that. Fantastic! Is there an, an audio book Steve Instarated version, or is that coming? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wouldn't really work because it relies so much on on the diagrams. And, and you know, sort of like the, the you know, sort of like the examples that, that I put, it would be difficult to do it as an audio. Fair enough. Um, you know, sort of, it's, it's just one of those things. You know, sort of, um, you know, I've, I've done you know, sort of like online workshops, but you know, I think the book actually goes into a lot more detail and, and is a lot clearer. You know, and I, and and the beauty of that is the fact that you know, sort of. You have this, you know, sort of as a physical book in your hand, or, or even, I mean, the Kindle version, so you can read it on the Kindle, which is even cheaper. Um, you know, sort of, and you can just take your own time. You can, you know, sort of like work through this at your own pace. You know, no one, no pressure, you know, to to do it in any way. You create your own stories in your own way. There's no, you know, do it in this style or anything. You know, there's no mad secrets or anything like that. Game writing isn't about mad secrets. In spite of what some people say. <laughs> so, what's what's the so, name of the book, Steve? Right. And where can we buy it? It's called... oh, got it. Look at that. <laughs> He's ready for such moments. Game writing. A workshop for interactive stories. <laughs> yeah. So, so you can buy it um, from Amazon, or you can order it from your local bookshop uh, or online booksellers. Um, you know, sort of. And yes. Thank you, Steve. It's Steve, Steve's actually saying it's a short book, but um, you know, you look quite weighty. Well, well, I mean, look, look at that. It's 
It's not. It is a I mean, shock. I, I'm, st- I'm struggling. I'm struggling with it, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sort of, if, you, if you'd, you know, sort of done more schoolwork instead of, you know, learning to program the the, the uh, ZX-81 or <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again, guys. Tony, we're going to talk about your project on the next one, because I think that deserves more than a, a two-minute chat. I think we'll go into more detail, because I'm intrigued, and I'm sure other people will. So thank you, guys, and thank you, everyone, for watching, uh, whether it's been live or watching the pre-recorded version on YouTube. It's been a pleasure, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>